This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. I open season four with Suyin Key, co-founder of Alico. Alico is putting behavior change at the core of a growth and well-being digital product. We chat about why even professionals have different perspectives on what mental well-being means, why having tools and strategies don't work without behavior change, Sue's personal journey to overcoming adversity, the generational shifts and tailwinds to well-being, and collaboration being key to a brighter future. A heads up, we do talk in some depth about eating disorders and anxiety. Otherwise, please enjoy my discussion with Suyin Ki. All right, to kick off our next season, I want to welcome Suyin Ki, one of the co-founders of Eliko to the Promise podcast. Eliko is setting out to be the all-in-one operating system for managing your personal growth and well-being. Sue, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Wonderful to have you open our next season. Sue, how would you best describe yourself to anyone who hasn't met you before and what you're trying to do with Alico? Yeah, I guess I best describe myself and a lot of my friends also say this about me as a really curious-minded person with lots of different thoughts, but also very highly empathetic, which drives a lot of my purpose with Alico where our mission is really to help more people live as opposed to merely exist. And my friends describe me as someone that's a really big advocate for what I believe in. So this is where I put my energy towards Alico, where we want to see a world where there is a healthy mind for everybody. Wonderful. What a noble purpose. Now, if we look at health and well-being and the mental aspect side of it, to start off with, I guess it's good to frame what your opinion and thoughts on mental health actually are. Now, we've had quite a few past guests on the show discussing mental health. We've had Cameron Higgins from Resonate. We've had Brianna McDonald as well. Each of them has had their own unique perspective on mental health. I'd love to hear what yours is. Yeah, sure. I'll give you my unique perspective and I'll also elaborate more on, I think, why there's so many different perspectives in the space as well. But for me, mental health really, to me, relates to all aspects of how you process, relate and interact with yourself and the world around you. And the best way I can describe it is it's how you think, how you feel, how you love, how you act and how you grow in your day to day. And the reason why I think there's a really big disconnect between the industry view of mental health and the everyday person's view of it. If you look at the World Health Organization, they say that mental health is a state of well-being. But there was a study done by the small world of words on 100,000 people where they asked the mental associations between mental wellness and mental health. And they found mental wellness had actually lots of positive terms like love and happiness, whereas mental health was associated with anxiety, depression, and therapy. And so you see lots of new terms coming up like well-being and mental fitness to really try and circumvent and change the narrative. I think it'll take some time to change, but it is moving with the mix of education, awareness, and a younger population as well. Right. Okay. So you've spoken about this really large study that sort of spread out what mental well-being means and what mental health means. Now, with such a large number, there's probably going to be a a standard baseline of what is construed as well-being and what is not well-being. So 
I guess my next question is, how does that actually get personalized? And why is personalization important in the context of mental well-being? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you made a really good point there of people's mental associations. And this is actually one of the core reasons why mental well-being is inherently a lot more subjective and a lot more complex than physical health and being able to understand it. Because in physical health, it's very objective. You can measure an arm, you can measure range of motion. You know if a bone is broken or not. But in mental well-being, like even the word calm and anxiety is so subjective to how someone interprets it in their head based on their experiences of the world. So we can't actually have, we don't have a good way to measure it objectively today. Two people may say they feel very calm or very anxious, but they may in fact be experiencing two very different things internally. And then when you look at it on a strategy level, that becomes really hard because you don't actually know the full picture objectively of what they're experiencing. So you have to look at like sort of their symptoms. And when you're dealing with something like worry or stress, there's over a hundred different ways to do so. And the studies that show that between positive psychology, CBT and mindfulness, which are all different fields in psychology, they actually have the same level of effectiveness in reducing symptoms of anxiety and worry. But the biggest difference is actually in how someone might resonate with one over another for it to be effective with them. So there's no right or wrong, really. It's just what works for that person and what's going to relate to them most. And that's where we are really, really focused on within our product, but also within our research as well. Right. Got it. So one thing that you kind of talked around just there in your response, um, but didn't quite mention explicitly is uh, behavioral science. Now, I'm curious if you have anything on hand around any studies or data that show the influence of behavioral science on mental well-being. Yes, definitely. And that was actually a really good segue for where we're really focusing our personalization on. Because I think while it's really important to have the right strategies and tools, and we actually started out with that of helping people identify the right strategies and tools. But what we learned over time from talking to lots of different professionals is that actually the strategies and tools have only a point to effect size on someone's likelihood to engage and to see the results. What's more important is how good can you convince this person and give them the knowledge and skills to actually execute on the strategy and tool? And if you can do that, that has a way higher impact in ROI than the actual selection of the strategy itself. So for us, a big, big part of our core focus is on personalization of behavior change strategies, um, which comes to the field of behavioral science. From our own research, we've interviewed over 150 people in the past few months asking them what's their biggest challenge with improving their well-being. And over 90% of people have said their number one challenge is actually doing the work and sticking with the routine because it's not fun. It's a chore. It's something where other things seem to take priority. And so for our job as a product is really to help people learn what motivates them and also to like tailor the way we engage with people based on their behavioral profile itself. Wonderful. Okay. If I go back to one of your early answers, you said that there's negative connotations to the term mental health versus mental well-being. Now, if we extend that slightly, any kind of discussion around this space can obviously lead to some pretty confronting outcomes. And I'm curious how you got motivated to actually even start exploring mental wellness and mental health and what were your experiences with mental health adversity in the past that made you motivated to build this product and to found this company? 
Yeah, definitely. For me, it really started when I was 18. At that point, I had been this top student and gone to uni, had a very high promise for myself as a very achievement-oriented person. And then in my first year of uni, I uh, got diagnosed with an eating disorder and got taken out of university for eight months um, and was doing nothing at home for those eight months except getting treatment. I went into hospital for inpatient for a month um, for eating disorders. And through that, it was really, really hard experience, but I met a lot of different people. And something that really stuck with me was when I met a 30-year-old woman at that point who had been going in and out of hospital for 10 years, and she wasn't able to integrate back into her job as a teacher. Because she had become so reliant on the hospital system, it became like a safe space. And for me, that story really hit me. And it was like, how do we actually help people work on their well-being every day at home in the real world and not be so reliant on the health system all the time because ultimately the hard work is done by yourself with the support of the health system but you can't just rely on it fully for the rest of your life all right well thank you for sharing your story as someone who has close experience with people who have had eating disorders i understand the kind of challenge that it can be to recover from that so congratulations on surviving and recovering and thank you for sharing again now if we were to go back to that point where you had, a, I guess, a, a light bulb moment, what was it that made you realize you needed to seek help? Because one of the things that I understand, and as you so conveniently alluded to, was that there is a safe space both in the treatment and in the, quote unquote, the, the being sick. So what was it that actually spurred you on to want to get rid of your eating disorder? Yeah, definitely. I think there was actually like two phases and you're a thousand percent right with eating disorders. It's actually one of the toughest things to recover from. So I am really blessed um, to be where I am today. And the reason why is because a lot of people actually don't really want to gain weight, which is what you need to recover. And for me, I was going through anorexia. And so at the start, it was actually my parents' decision to take me out of uni and force me to go into treatment. And even in a hospital, I remembered going on my knees and crying to my dad and telling him, please don't leave me here. And the doctor told him to walk away. And my dad walked away from me in the hospital and I just had to stay there. So it was definitely not my decision at the start, but I think it was very much well needed. So for any parent out there, I think being the support system for your child has really such a profound impact. But for me, when it really became something I wanted was when I could actually visualize the life that I could have outside eating disorder. And I wanted that more than the life I had with eating disorders. And that for me was being able to go out for meals with my friends, to be able to go on dates and find a partner. And that motivation became the bedrock for me to weather all the challenges that was coming up with going through a very long recovery. And it took like six years of really, really hard times. And often I remember lying in a university bed in my dormitory, just thinking like, I give up. Like, it's so hard. It's really, really hard. And this is why we're doing Aliko because I know and like have many friends who know how well-being and mental health is not just a one-off thing. It's an ongoing journey. There's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. And with the behavioral science part, it's really once you know someone's deep motivation, it can really help you weather a lot of the storm. So 
I think that that pretty much the journey to getting to true recovery. Got it. All right. Looking at what formed the bedrock of your motivation, I guess that means that was probably the most effective part of your recovery process. What would you say was missing from the whole treatment and recovery that would have made it easier for you to get better? I think it took a really long time to get to that realization. And I spent the first few years fighting the eating disorders. Like I would not go to seek the therapy support, even though I was suffering. So being able to get to that motivation and that deep drive and visualization a lot faster, I think would have helped. And then secondly, I think as well, it's the ongoing support. After leaving the hospital, I was pretty much like alone on the journey throughout university because I didn't tell anybody about it at that time because I think I just wasn't sure how people respond. And so it was very lonely. I had a support group from the hospital, but it was just international. There wasn't anyone I could really connect with regularly where I was. And I think that made it a lot harder throughout the journey. Okay. And my assumption is that you've taken some of these learnings and how your recovery could have been made better and translated that into Elico itself. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Mine and everyone else's that I've met along the way. Excellent. And we can talk a little bit more about Elico in a second. Now, what I'd like to chat about is how you translated these adversities in your life into your professional career. You've been in and around the startup ecosystem for a little while now, specifically focusing in the health and wellness space for a variety of companies, I should say. So why was that not enough? Those companies were doing good work, but you felt like you still had to step away and do your own thing here. Yeah, that's a really good question. And for me, once I knew that my lifelong mission was to help other people live better lives, I went back and studied psychology on top of my business degree and entered into working within healthcare and mental health with the specific goal of really trying to understand all parts of the ecosystem, from payers to providers to startups as well, so that I can understand how things work and where can I add the most value. And along the way, I've talked to tons of different people, both from the consumers, but also from the providers and professional side. And I can see that there's a really big problem that's not being met, which is really closing the loop between information and people actually taking action in their day to day. And what I feel is like we're in the middle of this really big shift where the way individuals are looking after their well-being today is vastly different to five years ago. If you look at millennials and Gen Z, it's so normal to talk about your mental health, self-care and well-being. Self-care is part of a lifestyle and the biggest thing is knowledge sharing is actually no longer behind a therapy room. It's actually online. And there's been a big rise in people sharing about it on social media, including LinkedIn as well. People share productivity tips, tips how to like, you know, overcome self-confidence issues. And so we're no short of information, whether it's from a professional or from online. It's actually being able to take that information and learning and translate it into action and being able to then continually execute on it the same way you have an idea or strategy. If you don't execute it, it won't work to see the impact. And I think that's really missing at the moment. So that's why we're really focused on that particular space, which ties back to the behavioral science as well. Wonderful. Okay. You're talking a good game here about what Alico can do. So talk us through how it actually works. How is it that you can actually try and help 
change people's behavior. Yeah, definitely. So as you've mentioned, we describe ourselves as an all-in-one operating system for personal growth and well-being. And the reason why we say personal growth and well-being is because of the fact, going back to what I said at the start, we really fundamentally believe that working on your mind is an ongoing journey. So it's always about how you can improve. You'll see a lot of the topics we cover is um, pretty much very relatable to things you have in your everyday like feelings, emotional intelligence, relationships, communication skills at work and whatnot. So when individuals come onto the platform, they can get inspiration from a range of different diverse types of content and tools. And then they're able to add and track their favorite tools into a library. And they're able to then experiment on it in their daily routine to see if it's working for them or not. What we do there is really focusing on taking the tools and making it actionable. So how do you actually experiment in a very structured way? How do you measure to know if it's working or not? And then if you like it, you can add it to your routine and build it as part of your regular practice ongoing. And the key difference here is really in two ways. I think firstly, it's the relatability aspect. And secondly, it's the behavior change support that we really focus on. Okay. From my experience of hopping on the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store, there's mental health tools, mental wellness tools all over the shop. And they all have hundreds of thousands of downloads. And oftentimes I hear that they've found difficulty with engagement. So if behavioral change is the biggest selling point of Alico, how do you actually design something that is sticky and effective, especially for people who are facing mental health or mental wellness challenges and might have a struggle thinking about, oh, this is just another thing that I need to do? Yeah, sure. 100%. I think that's actually a really big disconnect between traditional mental health and industry and what we want people to do versus what people are doing in the real world today. And I think that people say, oh, no one engages with mental health content, but they do. They're just doing it on other platforms. People are listening to self-development podcasts on Spotify. People are following um, Instagram psychologist influencers. A few weeks ago, there's this thing called shadow work that amassed 700 million views on TikTok on how to do shadow work. So there is already a lot of people that are interested in this content. I think where there's a gap, there hasn't been a tool that has been able to relate to how modern day individuals are engaging today. So that's number one is the relatability. And that really ties to us being able to build a very engaging product because ultimately there's many different ways that people relate to specific types of tools and topics and also based on their diverse ways of thinking. So some people are more into philosophy. Some people are more into mindfulness. For us, being able to work with different creators to create the content that speaks to different types of audiences is really important. And then the second one is we have a behavioral scientist on our team who is amazing. And she comes from Noom as the ex-head of behavioral science there, who is really helping us build out our behavior change engine and really going deep on it, not just from a surface level of let me put some rewards here, but trying to understand each individual's behavioral profile and how might we motivate and engage them in different ways. This is something that's I think still relatively new and behavioral science is still a new field, which is why we're constantly 
looking to research and learn and iterate on this and build deeper and deeper understanding as we progress along as well. All right. If you're going to try and reach such a diverse audience of people, each of whom will have their own various needs, right? How do you actually go about doing that? Because it, it doesn't seem like that'd be an easy task. You're basically fragmenting your outreach into effectively millions of people. Yeah, definitely. I think if we describe our ideal customer at the start, they're really people who are already watching and listening or reading this kind of self-improvement, well-being content on a regular basis, uh, whether it's on Spotify, whether it's on like, social media or um, newsletters, but they're not actually seeing the results and taking action. Going back to what I was saying before, about 90% of the people we spoke to said that's their biggest challenge. So when we narrow in on that, there's actually audiences that we already know in channels such as social media where we can find them. And then the second thing as well is we've actually been taking a focus on people who are looking after others, specifically looking at, for example, founders' mental well-being. Because us as well, operating in a startup community, know that it is really challenging um, when founders have to live a very lonely journey. And naturally, these are the kind of people that invested into self-development and personal growth ongoing as well. At some point, we'll continue to branch out, but we're focusing on these all niche communities at the start, doing lots of community engagement work through lots of different collaborations as well. Gotcha. Okay. Now, if someone was to land on the Alico website, they might see that part of the assistance that you provide is powered by AI. Now, it's a bit of a hot potato of a word at the moment, uh, has both positive and negative connotations. I guess what I'd like to know is, is it genuinely a useful tool to assist with crafting a, a well-being plan? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I do really believe it is a very useful tool for many different parts of the funnel, whether it's diagnosis to recommendation to planning and to where we're looking at, which is actually engagement and supporting someone along the journey as well. So for us, where we look at it is like really understanding someone's profile but, and then really being able to pick the right kind of intervention and engagement strategies for them. But then the second part to that is also the insights that we deliver back to them. We have our alpha product that's been running for a couple of months now on a very close group of users. And last week, we had a really, really great feedback from one of the users who said that she was so overwhelmed, but through the insights that we've given her, which has been generated from her data plus our own AI model, she was actually able to uncover patterns that she had not realized before and built her self-awareness to then solve the problem that was causing her to feel overwhelmed. And so I think it's little bits like this that make a big difference in the insights, plus the whole understanding of someone's profile to then deliver more personalized experiences, which I think that we're still at a very, very early stages of what that looks like. When people say personalized mental health. I don't think we're anywhere near that. All right. Interesting. Now, if we take the example of that alpha user that you just refer to, obviously they would have had to share some of their personal information with you about the challenges they're going through. And depending on what that is, it could be very, very personal and sensitive information. So how do you actually handle information like that? Yeah, definitely. So we take a really, really big priority on privacy and security. Having worked in mental health myself before, I understand how sensitive it can be. And even though we are 
more on the well-being side, there are still going to be information that is quite sensitive. So all our infrastructure is SOC 2 and HIPAA compliant and has end-to-end data encryption. And we leverage top-tier cloud services as well to support that. And then we also have anonymization and pseudo-anonymization where users can only access data meant for them. So it provides both the safety and personalization. And I think what's really important is that users have a choice and they understand what their data is being used for and the insights that we're giving back to them is really valuable. Because I think one of the biggest things I see as well with a lot of digital health products is they collect a lot of data from the users, but they don't actually give value back. And that's a really, really important part for us is insights and really, really focusing on that within the product so that it helps people learn more about themselves ultimately. Wonderful. Okay, you said you have a few alpha users and you shared one story. What's the biggest success story so far from your early days? Yeah, you know, it's always amazing to hear feedback. And I think I mentioned this to you before that every time I hear a story, I almost cry <laughs> most of the time because it's, this is, the, this is why we're doing this. It's to see the impact on people's lives. And I think each of them are equally amazing. But the one that stands out to me will probably be like one of the first users who came on board to our very early prototype when it was just on the web PDF and it wasn't even engaging, didn't have much built into it. It was just really to test out our personalization model and give him a plan. And he used it and he actually managed to reduce his overthinking and worry, which is what he was going through, to the point where he was thinking of going to go into hospital because he was so stressed out, but he ended up not having to go. And um, he picked up some new techniques that he was able to then use ongoing as well, which he learned from a recommendation that we had provided. And I think like why that really stood out to me is because that was so early on in the journey with such a hacky tool and someone like, you know, having that level of impact. I, yeah, I was really, 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 it was tears of joy. The impact was, yeah, made me really happy to see that we were doing something right. What a wonderful proof point to have, especially super early on and validation of the whole journey that you've been on and you're going to keep going through, I suppose. Now, if we chart that journey forward and we look to the future of Alico. What are your next steps in the near future? Yeah, so we spent a lot of the previous quarter running these kind of experiments to validate different parts of our idea, product and market. And right now we're focusing on building out our beta app, which we're actually going to be launching in the next month. And it's going out to our waitlist users invite only. So if anyone wants to get access to it, you can join from our website. And then we'll be doing an official App Store launch in early Q1 next year. We're also going to be running as part of this a study to prove our prevention of anxiety. I think that that's been one of the things that no organization has been able to do well at scale. And this is something that we really believe in because we want to show the world that prevention has this ROI. And so being part of the beta, people have the choice to also participate in the study and contribute back to this world that we're trying to create if they choose to. Awesome. What great news to share. Now, in addition to that study, actually, are there any dream organizations you'd want to partner with? Yeah, definitely. If I think about the dream organizations, I probably classify them into three different groups. So the first one is really partnering with top subject matter experts, creators, or even inspirational people, or people who feel like they have a story that they want to share 
that believe in the idea of everyday well-being and looking after your mind ongoing to come and share their thoughts and expertise and do content collaboration pieces with us. This is really to help raise awareness, but also to make mental health knowledge more affordable and accessible. A big part of what we're trying to do is democratize access to mental health education as well. Going back to what I was saying before, a lot of it is online and digital, but how do we make it very high quality and easy to access? And we've been quite lucky to have had a lot of support along the way from people who believe in our vision. So I think more people like that, we're always willing to have a chat with. The second one is collaborating with research institutes on knowledge sharing and advancing our learnings in both mental well-being, but also behavioral science. And going back to what I was saying that we are very, very early in the field of personalization. And I think a lot of it comes from the complexities of data and also understanding the field of psychology as a whole. It's quite a new field in science in general. And then the last one is to work with employers or insurers who believe in a more proactive way of looking after and tackling mental health compared to traditional ways, which is going straight to an EAP service. So there's this theme really of working with people who believe in proactive well-being and we can support each other along the way towards building this world. Wonderful. And on your journey towards building that world, currently you have yourself on board, you have your co-founder Johnson, who had the pleasure of meeting, and a couple other people as well. Are there any additional skills you might need in the team in order for you to grow and, and build this world that you envision? Yeah, definitely. So we do have science people on our team as well, a science advisor and the head of behavioral science that I mentioned, who's now our chief science officer. I think the thing that we definitely have been getting uh, support on, but would love someone that's more closely working with us is around the idea of how do we change the narrative and do creative storytelling through digital means and marketing to really bring mental well-being as a lifestyle and be seen as something that is for the modern everyday individual. So really in that sort of marketing and branding space is one that would be quite helpful for us. Great. A shout out to anybody who is in that space. Perhaps if you're listening, you can get in touch with Sue. We'll get your contact details at the end of the show. Now, Sue, uh, we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but I'd love to hear if you have a fleshed out vision for this. If everything goes right for you, what do you think the world will look like? Yeah, definitely. Our vision is to see a healthy mind for everybody. And we really mean it. And that looks like from a societal perspective, we're able to enable this world. As I said, I really believe that we are going through a shift right now where looking after your well-being is becoming a lot more normalized. How do we actually better enable and support this and scale it beyond just the subset of people who are prioritizing right now so that it's becoming mass adopted. And then I think as part of that as well, when we say a healthy mind for everybody, it goes back to the principle we have that a healthy mind is a fundamental human right. It's not a luxury. So going back to making it more affordable and accessible, which is why we focus on being digital first, but have blended models of care where in the future, you are able to also book in with professionals if you need to. But for those that cannot access it, we want to make the digital version very much high quality so that you can get quality care as well at a much cheaper cost. From a science perspective, being able to make new discoveries in both behavioral science and psychology, that helps reduce the trial and error rate and able to get someone to see results a lot faster. And that's through the research work that we continue to do. We run a lot of experiments constantly, even from when we were starting out last quarter, 
to continue to refine our understanding of factors that influences someone's uh, likelihood to engage and stick with different types of interventions. And then the last one is ultimately we're still operating within the real world and the healthcare ecosystem. So for us, this world looks like a more forward thinking and more proactive uh, healthcare ecosystem that believes in prevention and maintenance value. And we will see the healthcare system shifts towards a value-based funding model as well. There's a, a lot of changes that need to happen between where we're at now to where you want to go. Now, if we take that vision and look at the team that you have with you at the moment, what's your personal individual role? What do you personally need to do to get all of us to that vision of a mentally healthy world that you just painted for us? I think the biggest thing I can do is enabling the people and the communities around us that can help us collaboratively build this world together. I'm a really, really big fan of collaboration. I think that this kind of world is done together with different people. I was talking uh, recently about a startup who's creating physical wellness hubs. And that's amazing because we're the digital version. So how do we build everyday well-being and make it more available for everyone? And the way I think my biggest contribution is carefully crafting out how we can make steps towards this future world and then sharing our story more so we bring the right people along the journey that can build this world together. Wonderful. That is such a beautiful way to end the episode and to help us kick off the new season of Promise. Sue, I want to thank you once again for coming on the show. The last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any social media or contact info in case anybody wants to uh, help you out, whether it's additional marketing skills or to sign up as a beta tester or just to get to know you a little bit better. How can they find you? Yeah, definitely. All of those sound really good. As I mentioned, if you're ever interested in what we do, feel free to reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. We also have our waitlist you can sign up to on alico.io. And we'll also be launching small community groups as well, focus on, as I mentioned, the founder well-being, but also the beta groups as we launch the beta to be really involved in helping us build out this product together. So there's lots of different avenues to get in touch. And if you ever just want to connect or grab a coffee, yeah, my door is always open. Wonderful. I'll stake all those links in the show notes. Sue, thank you once again for stopping by. Thanks so much, Sean, for having me. This was awesome. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is Promise.